Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Welcome back to Body Justice. I'm so excited for this conversation with Whitney today. Whitney is a registered dietitian, registered nurse, anti-racism educator, consultant, and human trafficking consultant. We discovered each other on Instagram, which is how I meet most of my guests. Um, so thank you, social media. Um, but Whitney is awesome. She um, is a fierce advocate for BIPOC folks and eating disorder recovery, and she's actually hosting the first BIPOC eating disorders conference, which you can totally register for um, in the show notes of this episode. You can also find her website and more about her work um, and her Instagram links in the show notes as well. Um, Before we get into the episode, I just want to check in with you all and just see how everyone is feeling and doing. Um, check in with yourself, obviously, because I can't hear your response, but just take a pause and notice whatever is going on for you. Um, for me, I am trying to have a slow summer. So as you know, if you've been listening, I'm going to take a little short break after this episode. Um, I'll be back hopefully in the fall and, or late summer, but I am going to try to really slow down and fight my inner capitalist that wants me to always be doing more. Um, so it's going to be a little season of slowness for me as I get into kind of like other areas of my life, like my different hobbies I have that I'm really excited about. And I hope you all get to kind of do that too, if that feels good, slowing down and pulling back from work-related things. It's can be really hard when you're super passionate about what you do, which I am, Um, but I also know that I have to give myself rest and I don't have to always be productive. So I do have some guests already lined up for the fall, so I do know I'll be back, so please stay posted. Um, Really excited for those talks, and in the meantime, you can keep up with me at my Instagram at bodyjustice.therapist, my website, eatingdisorderocdtherapy.com. I'll still be around. I'm just putting a pause on episodes. So um, without further ado, let's get to Whitney. And if you are enjoying this podcast, please go rate and review me on Apple or Spotify. It really helps the podcast reach more people. And while we're on the break, go back and listen to previous episodes. There's so many. I think we're on episode 42, which is wild. So go back and listen to all the other episodes that maybe you've missed and I will chat with you all soon. Whitney, can you tell us a little bit about you, how you identify, and what you're passionate about? Yes, so I am, I identify as a cis, black, biracial woman, Um, and um, yeah, I definitely uh, like occupy from 
just colorism, um, very light skinned and um, occupy what I would say is like size privilege within the context of the black community. I definitely live in a larger body, but still um, very much navigate the world in, in a body size privilege way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And what are you passionate about? Oh gosh, all things, all things. <laughs> Um, all things eating disorder, all things, um, just really working with black, brown and indigenous people of color and like just the intersections of mental health, specifically eating disorders, um, and anti-trafficking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are all like such important areas. And like we've talked about before, like, um, topics that don't get talked about enough, nearly enough. Um, how did you get interested in working with folks with eating disorders? You know, I actually was interested in undergrad, um, not, not undergrad, I'm sorry, when I did my master's program. So to be a dietitian, you have to do internship with a coordinated um, uh, didactic program. And so I was really interested, but I knew I wanted to work in HIV. And so I did like my thesis in HIV. Um, did a little bit of ED, just like um, observation. But then when I started working in an HIV clinic, I was the sole HIV AIDS um, provider that was an RD for the county. I really started noticing um, just some like disordered eating signs within my clients and patients that were HIV positive. Mm. And so that really sparked my interest and desire to learn more about eating disorders. Mm, that's so interesting that it came about kind of this by chance sort of way, but um, and interesting to think about how it would affect folks in the HIV with who are HIV positive. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you have a special passion for working with BIPOC folks with eating disorders. What are some of the cultural differences that might impact BIPOC folks with eating disorders? Well, I think it's interesting because one, we have to acknowledge how like just left out of the conversation at multiple levels, BIPOC folks have been with eating disorder, whether that's treatment, advocacy, screening, diagnosis, research. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times we're not even really using the term eating disorders to describe the relationship that we're experiencing with food and body, right. which I think is why I end up getting, I see a lot of high acuity, severe cases of with BIPOC with eating disorders. And I think that's part of the reason why that is. Mm -hmm. Like people have to wait till it gets really bad before they seek help because there's just so much stigma and barriers to care. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Even if like as a BIPOC person, even if you know you're struggling with something, there's so much cultural stigma about help seeking yeah. and it can feel like you are, um, what's the word, like betraying your family. Um, yeah. Problems a lot of time are supposed to stay in the family um, traditionally and it can feel really counterintuitive to like go to therapy or meet with a dietitian. Yeah. Well, and you bring up such a good point because like, yes, historically as like we operate in those like systems of like staying within the family. What's so interesting about eating disorders is that a lot of people don't have access within their community for treatment. So mm -hmm. not only are you talking about this really like stigmatizing thing, quote unquote, like just to get access to treatment may not be within your immediate community settings, which adds mm -hmm. like another layer. It. Yes, absolutely. Um, what do you think? Um, 
What are some ways you think that treatment should be tailored to serve BIPOC folks more kind of like holistically and not just this kind of cookie cutter gold standard way we unfortunately are trained to treat eating disorders? Yeah, that's a great question. So I love that you asked that. I want to see us in our like indigenous healing like uh, sectors, like whatever that is representative to each unique community, train people on mental um, health and eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to see that be more of the norm, um, whether that's clergy, whether that's pastors in the black community, like what are some of those like indigenous healers and rituals that we want to be a part of our community and our treatment and how mm-hmm. do we embrace those? Um, I wanted to be more mainstream to have these conversations within like the family and multi-generational setting as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think about like shamanism too, in like Southeast Asian culture, like shamanism is one of the ways that we go about healing. Right. And I just think that being able to incorporate like, like what you said, like different yeah. modes and pathways to recovery I think it's so damaging, you know, to be told that you there's one way to recover and it's by having a treatment team of all these white professionals. And if you're not white and you can't relate to that, it's, it's not necessarily going to lead to a lasting recovery. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wait, so I know this wasn't part of the script, but can you tell me more about shamanism? Because that is really intriguing to me. Yeah, honestly, I don't know a lot about it, except for that that is like, you know, kind of a, a normal way in my in some of my culture. So I'm mixed race. And so in my Indonesian side, um, that is totally a modality of healing. Um, I actually was supposed to meet with a shaman recently, but then I backed out because I was a little bit nervous. <laughs> um, but it's just kind of when you have any ailment, physical, or mental, spiritual, um, the go-to is to seek shamanic shamanism services. Um, yeah, so I want to learn more about it too, honestly. Like I'm very <laughs> colonized, unfortunately, so I wish I knew more about it. Yeah, same, same. Like, that's amazing. And I, well, I love that because I kind of suffered like a really pretty significant, like um, traumatic experience. And I've been doing acupuncture mm-hmm. with somebody who is Chinese and identifies and uses traditional Chinese medicine. And we were just talking about how, like, for me, the acupuncture has been so, has been transformative and just like my embodiment and like reconnecting with my body. Mm-hmm. That it's like, I really wish other people had that experience and could and embrace that modality. And what would that be like, you know, if we started incorporating that in our mm-hmm. body and embodiment training, you know? Agreed. Um, I, I mean, I suffer from chronic migraines and acupuncture is the only thing that actually helps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think, Very yeah, nice. envisioning a world where all these different modes of healing can be incorporated into someone's, you know, treatment. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm also super interested in like psychedelics and psychedelic therapy. Yeah, same. Me too. Me too. I'm really, really interested. I'm getting my doctorate to be a psych NP and really hoping I can like find a provider practitioner while I'm in school or like shortly after because I'm really interested in that too. Me too. Yeah. I applied for like a certification process. So we'll see if I get in, but it's also one of those tricky things where psychedelics have been used you know from indigenous cultures and BIPOC communities for centuries 
And now it's just kind of gaining traction. And sadly, a lot of old rich white people are going to capitalize off of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'll have to keep me up to date on how it is with the training and stuff. And yeah, I will. Um, so one of the many posts on your Instagram that really caught my eye was when you talked about, you know, eating disorders among the un undocumented community. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, what is that intersection like? Yeah, so it's an it's an area that I'm very passionate about, but I don't hold that identity. And um, I think for me, it has really opened my eyes to how we're failing, how conventional U.S. systems and treatment are really failing this particular population. And it takes a lot of privilege to be able to move city to city, county to county, state to state, right? And if you're working, if, if you're working with somebody who holds um, a status of being undocumented, and I, I, don't, I don't know all the language, so please correct me if something, if I misspeak, but um, that is a significant barrier and a real fear that I don't think we're taking into consideration. Mm -hmm. And how it kind of landed for me was I ended up working with somebody who was an adolescent and was very, very sick and very mm -hmm. like severely, um, honestly, one of the sickest clients I've mm -hmm. ever worked with. And I've been a provider for 10 years. Um, but because of that status, I couldn't just, we, the doctor and I couldn't just send this person out of state. I mean, there's a real legit fear. And then also like, how are they going to access treatment? Right. And so that just really opened up my eyes on one, just understanding the language, like a lot of people, myself included, like they're, you know, how, how somebody identifies undocumented versus immigrant versus asylum seeker versus refugee versus first generation and how each of those um, identities, so to speak, can intersect with food and body, but also the ability to access care. Mm -hmm. and we don't talk about it at all. Mm -hmm. No, it's not talked about. I think you're seeing your post was the first time I even heard that talked about. Um, and it is really sad, right? Because unfortunately, you're right. Like the, the way that our healthcare system is set up is we have to like, it, our healthcare is so connected to the government that mm -hmm. you have to be being undocumented. It just, you don't have access to the same kinds of supports and care. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times too, when you're on, when you're like living undocumented, I mean, I can't speak for myself, but for my family, um, my grandmother, one of my grandmothers came here undocumented and you're in survival mode. Like, even if you have mental health conditions, it's like, you can't even slow down or feel safe enough to really address it. Um, and that lives throughout the generations that we just do it ourselves. Like we don't, it's, it's unsafe to reach out for support. Yeah. Um, Especially if you're not in a city that is a sanctuary city. Yes. You know, like, what yeah. do you do? Like, do you risk getting access to treatment, but exposing that you're here? And mm -hmm. what if you run into a provider to, that is not aware of just all the layers and hoops that you have to go through or they're prejudiced against people? Yeah which is real you know totally yeah it's almost like you have to find someone through word of mouth that you that is like known to be safe for the undocumented community um I'm really curious then and you don't have to share if you don't want but like how did things turn out with that client and all those barriers to care they're doing so well Yay. so we ended up 
um, the therapist, MD, who's a pediatrician, who was like, both are really good friends of mine. And we worked together in a lot of cases. We just did like a very reduced rate, but we made, the person had to go inpatient to refeed and stabilize. Mm -hmm. And then we just made, because we knew we weren't going to be able to send them out of state. We made our own like mock, um, what we would call in the ED world, PHP level of care. And so mm -hmm. they had touch points almost every single day. Mm -hmm. Um, until you know nutritionally and um, medically they were stable enough uh, and then kind of reduce that but they're amazing um they're going to college oh my gosh such a beautiful beautiful story so i'm just so thankful i'm so glad they found you because oh yeah. could have turned out very differently if it was a different provider yeah they're great they um they, it's just, yeah, they've been one of my favorite people. You shouldn't have favorites as a clinician, but. Yeah. I mean, we all do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. I like that you bring up to you that kind of like mock PHP, um, because I've totally had to do that with clients before too, that residential is not either somewhere they want to go, somewhere they feel safe or just not accessible. Mm -hmm. And it's not talked about enough, like setting up that mock PHP in outpatient um, what's your experience been with that? You know, I've been, I think COVID before, like being very traditionally changed, it was very much like you meet these APA guidelines, you need these clinical standards. This is the appropriate level of care. Yeah. Um, but then once I really started diving into like our, like my community and working with people of color, you know, or people that identify as like the global majority, we just don't always have that access. And we're like communal people, right? Like the, I, I could never, as like a black mom, the thought of sending my young black child out of state for treatment is so countercultural. Like it, I would do anything not to do that. Right. And so that part of me as a mom very much resonates with some of these families as well. And then too, if you think about like, the makeup and the demographic of the United States. Most essential workers are people of color. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that a lot of times essential workers don't always have the benefits to leave and access treatment out of state for months at a time. Mm -hmm. And so just the ability to access treatment in and of itself is a privilege that most people don't have. And then you tack on COVID and it's like everything shut down. Nobody was going anywhere. There was a skyrocket in eating disorders. And mm -hmm. so I think it kind of just really was a domino effect of what are we gonna do now to like, we can keep people safe as mm -hmm. best as, as providers, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was such, there was months long waiting list for residential programs, um, yeah. but even COVID or not, like I love that you bring to light that kind of communal aspect of healing. And I completely agree. I think if you can, um, if you can keep a client, you know, in outpatient by increasing session frequency and other supports and they can stay in their community, that feels so much safer yeah. um, for the person. And then, you know, when they step, I don't want to say step down, but like when care, you know, decreases a little bit, they already have, they're already in their community. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like kind of holding them and kind of creating this foundation so that they can then access that on their own yeah we should create some graphics of like what this would look like and um like the southeast asian culture like 
like how the shaman needs to be a part of that and like black culture like maybe the pastor the bishop is a part of that the acupuncture is is a part I think that's what's missing if you're gonna have people like stay in their communities to access care who are the other people that you can bring in besides Mm -hmm. just the traditional dietitian doctor psychiatrist therapist Exactly. Yeah. And like talking about how it doesn't have to be one or the other, it can be a blend, you know, an individualized blend to that person. Yeah. yeah we should totally collaborate on a post like that. I would love to do that. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do okay, it. Okay. Awesome. Um, so you also focus on human trafficking and the intersection of human trafficking and eating disorders. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And just like, what, what are eating disorders like in the human trafficking? Um, yeah, absolutely. So it's been really interesting. There's not a lot of research at all on this demographic of human trafficking and eating disorders. Um, and so one acknowledging that, one of the questions I always ask, and I really encourage providers to ask is, have you ever had to exchange um, a sex act for clothing, food, water, or shelter? Mm-hmm. And I think that lets us know trafficking risk, trafficking history and vulnerability. And there's something of like, if you were exchanging a sex act, any type of sex act for a basic need, like that is foundation in your treatment and recovery. Mm-hmm. And how do we address that? How do we provide services for you that you aren't having to exchange your body for like basic human needs, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we think about that of trafficking, so if you think about like um, commercial sexual exploitation, and it, it kind of depends on, it's a spectrum, right? So when I used to work with uh, people that identified as um, sex workers, like they would be walking all hours of the night, right? And so let's say you are moving out of that life. You've got to think you've literally been like, ex- like you've been um, doing like a- outputting energy for eight to 10 hours, right? right? And then maybe you go into a safe house or you go into some setting or something like that to access care. Now your body isn't moving at that level. Maybe you haven't had choice to access what you want for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. So now you all of a sudden, everything is not control and regimented. You have so much access to choice, but you're not used to making decisions about food. Mm-hmm. You know, Or maybe you are dieting or restricting um, are engaging in other ED behaviors to keep your body a certain way um, because that is what your pimp or trafficker has, you know, commanded you to do. So there's are so many different nuances of the intersection of eating disorders within trafficking. Um, one, it's just not talked about, but we don't really combine the care for two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like some of those core themes of eating disorder disorder care in general, right? Like being disconnected from your body and not having choice or agency. Um, But the reasons and the intention behind it are so much different. And it's important to address that because that's going to inform that person's recovery. Yeah, Um, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, that is so interesting and makes me so sad for anyone out there struggling with that. and probably not even realizing that, that, that it's disordered eating, um, just trying to survive. Um, Survival mode. Yeah. And then the layer of like not being in control of your own body, you know, and someone else dictating what's done with your body, um, in the situation of like a pimp. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
So do you often work with, I know you have your nonprofit for human sex trafficking. Um, do you, do you ever work with clients from, from that nonprofit agency in, in an eating disorder recovery way? You know, I don't, it's been more because I'm also a nurse. It's been more of medical advocacy and like stabilization of if they're pregnant, um, any, like if they're going to get a forensic like exam, sexual assault exam, um, if they've got kids accessing that, um, I've done a little bit of body image, but it's been more like, um, addressing immediate needs and concerns. Um, we've had several clients that have had like seizure disorder or cancer, Mm. Um, and that is how they ended up in the life, so to speak. So more so on like addressing, um, specific medical needs, but I, and I've worked as a dietitian. I actually had somebody that was on dialysis from, uh, that was trafficked into the state from a different state, um, but not specifically ED treatment. Okay. I got you. No, that makes sense. It's like addressing the basic needs. Like mm -hmm. if someone doesn't have their basic needs met, we can't really talk about recovery anyways. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it really reminds me like hearing you talk about that is like why abolition is so important, like creating those conditions. So people aren't ever in those situations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, awesome. Well, also I would love to hear about your upcoming BIPOC eating disorders conference, which is so needed. I'm so excited. So it has been a whirlwind. This might, I've never played a conference and it's been interesting. I was sharing with somebody earlier today, like I, I hold the privileges of being a licensed provider. I did not realize all the hoops that you have to jump through of like different, like different modalities that you have to have. And if you don't have this particular type of presenter, you can't apply for CEUs. And so that's really? been so interesting. Yeah. Just like cognitively trying to um, wrap my brain around that, but I am so excited. Um, I think it's the first of the kind I've never heard of a BIPOC exclusive um, eating disorder conference. So registration is open to anyone and everyone, but all of the speakers and presenters will be people of color that hold different intersectional identities. Oh, that is so awesome. And yeah, I saw yesterday that you, it's going to offer CEUs and I was thinking, wow, this must've been something you've been planning for a while. So I've been dreaming about it for two years, but I just started the planning two months ago. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so I, 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 you know, people like I've been in community with are like, you know, I've been friends with, I was like, can you please present, like help mm -hmm. me <laughs> Yes. Like through it. I've met some amazing people like you and, and other providers. Cause I'm not, I haven't really been on Instagram. I just got an Instagram like a year and a half ago, two years ago. Mm -hmm. And so I've just been able to connect with so many amazing people. And I'm like, okay, I want to do this like in person next year, you know, yeah. Maybe, um, Ooh, that would be awesome. Yeah, like <laughs> that would be so cool. So yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited for it. Um, yeah. So what are the things that when you had to apply for CEUs, what modalities do they like want you to have? So each there, each like within, and, and you will know the language better than me. So with each therapy discipline, you have to have at least one person of that discipline, like doing live. So as like an RD, I can get CEUs for like pre-recorded and live, but different therapy modalities, like some of them have strict guidelines on like, you can only do apply for live CEUs. Mm, mm. You know? Or if you do the pre-recorded, you have to do a post-test as well. Gotcha. So that's been really challenging 
like navigating like LPC and LCSW and psychologist and you know and I think there's like an NCC one too but it's mm-hmm. so it's been it's been um interesting yeah wow <laughs> that's stressful <laughs> yeah yeah and just having to go through each board it's been a lot it's been a mm-hmm. lot yeah at first when you said modalities I thought I thought I don't know whoever controls the CEUs was like making you come to this conference with like people talking about CBT, DBT, like modalities like that. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Sorry. I could probably use a different word for that. Um, I guess disciplines would be a better word. Okay. Because I was like, that's so counter, right? Like, because as a BIPOC (laughs) conference, we're trying to do something different. Yes. 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 (laughs) Okay. I'm glad they're not controlling that because that was no. (laughs) That would be terrible. That would be terrible. Where can people register for the conference? Yeah, so we have our website, which is like in my link tree, but it's BIPOC eating disorders, um, but you can find it's It's probably more easily accessible through my Instagram, which is Whitney, WhitneyTrotter.rd, um, or the eating disorder has its own Instagram now, which is like BIPOC.EatingDisorders. I love the promo video that you all released yesterday. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Our intern made that and it was, I was like, this is amazing. Um, yeah, it was so good. Job, so. And would you recommend that um, people in recovery could attend this conference too, or is it mostly for providers? Absolutely. So people in recovery can attend the conference, but unless they're a provider, we don't necessarily want them going to the provider networking hour. Oh, yeah. But everything else is absolutely. Gotcha. I love how there's two like separate tracks. Like if you are a BIPOC clinician, you go to the networking. If you are a white clinician, you go to the anti-racism training. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We were trying to be really intentional with each like segment and hour that we did for the conference. So awesome. Well, I don't know, but if you know this, but a few of us have decided to like get together that weekend and we like rented a cute little Airbnb and we're all going to watch it together. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I love that so much. (laughs) Send in pictures, tag me. Like, that's awesome. I love love that so much. Yeah. Cause it's going to be like a live three days of just like, like every hour um, is something. So I'm excited. Totally. Awesome. Um, well, something that I'd like to ask all my guests is guests is when you hear the term body justice, uh, what does that term mean to you? You know, I love that question. I think it's even more important now just with everything going on, um, just like with the Supreme Court and just all the laws. And I think like body justice to me is having the right and bodily autonomy over your body. A hundred percent. I agree. Um, I think it encompasses so many things too, right? Like there's so many sectors of body justice. And (laughs) when I first started this podcast, I was thinking, you know, about the intersectionality of different social identities and eating disorders, which I still think is 100% a part of body justice. But I've also realized it's so much more than that. And Um, and so it's been a humbling experience. And so I love getting everyone's definitions because I think it's such a collective thing that we do together. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. And you already said like your, your Instagram and stuff. Is there anything else you want to highlight where people can find you? Yeah, definitely. Instagram is the best way. Um, or my definitely Instagram, WhitneyTrotter.rd. Um, I do provide like clinical supervision case consultation for providers. Um, and that's like through my website, WhitneyTrotter.com. 
So cool. And is that, so since you're a nurse and dietitian, do you offer like, can you offer like medical consultation on clients as well? Yeah. So I usually do, that's the bulk of my supervision is doing like consultation on high acuity ED cases. Ooh, cool. Okay. I'm going to keep that in mind. I love doing that. (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today and I'm excited to connect with you more in the future. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you.